Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Eugène-François Vidac was a scoundrel. Born in 1775 in Arras, France, he was never interested in following his father's footsteps as a baker. Instead, he rebelled, beginning his life of crime at the tender age of 13. Little Eugène stole all of his family's silver cutlery, sold it, and spent every cent that he got that same day. His parents were understandably shocked, and, hoping to nip such delinquency in the bud, they enrolled their teenager in a reformatory school. Eugene came back home a few weeks later, purporting to be completely reformed. But his good behavior only lasted about a year. At the age of 14, he was taking a fencing lesson when he killed his instructor. Which is a big leap from stealing spoons, I know. But seeing as this happened about 250 years ago, nobody really knows the specific details. It might have been an accident, but if so, Eugene didn't own up to his deadly mistake. Instead, he stole his parents' life savings and ran away, hoping to sail to America and start a new life. Unfortunately for Eugene, his escape plan quickly soured. He lost all the money. It's not clear how, but before he even made it out of France, it was gone. Unable to face his family, he spent the next two years working as a circus performer slash traveling salesman before enlisting in the army at the age of 16. There, Eugene gained a reputation as a man who was quick to argue and even quicker to demand a duel. He took up arms against at least 15 of his fellow Frenchmen, killing two of them. All of this could apparently be forgiven, but when Eugene full-on hit his commander, he was forced to leave the army. At this point now, Eugene was 18, and for the next 15 years, he did whatever he had to to get by. He had love affairs with women from the very bottom to the very top of social hierarchy. He enlisted in the army multiple times under false identities, usually being promptly discovered and kicked out. He got into bar fights and committed petty crimes. Eugene was always in and out of jail, although mostly out. He mastered the art of disguise and learned how to escape from practically every prison in Paris. But as he reached his 30s, Eugene grew tired of running and scheming. He wanted to turn over a new leaf. In 1809, at 33 years old, he turned himself into the authorities. But there was a catch. Eugene told the French police he would not go back to jail as a prisoner, but rather as a secret government informant. For the police, this was a huge opportunity. Eugene was a slippery criminal who they couldn't manage to keep behind bars. But if he was willing to work for them instead of against them, well, it could be the beginning of a beautiful, if unlikely, partnership. The police took Eugene up on his offer, and for the next 21 months, the criminal-turned-cop supplied them with info from inside prison walls. He then got official permission to fake a prison escape so he could continue his work on the streets. There, Eugene organized an undercover crime-fighting unit made up entirely of his old criminal contacts. And I know what you're thinking. How effective could they possibly have been? Well, by one account, they helped lower crime rates in Paris by around 40%. They were fantastic at their jobs precisely because they'd spent so many years skirting the law. 
They knew the tricks the criminals pulled, so they knew how to catch and stop them. Heck, at one point, Napoleon soon signed a degree making the group an official law enforcement brigade, known as the National Security in English. From there, Eugene worked his way up in French law enforcement, pioneering all kinds of investigative techniques that we take for granted today. For example, undercover detective work, criminal records, ballistic testing, shoe print analysis, forensic fingerprinting, these were all Eugene's ideas. Eugene Vidoc was the first modern detective. Eventually, he became an esteemed member of French society and rubbed shoulders with some very important people, like Victor Hugo, the author of Les Miserables. Hugo based the characters of Jean Valjean and Inspector Javert off of Eugene. And Eugene's literary influence didn't stop there. Edgar Allan Poe referenced him in the short story The Murders in the Rue Morgue, which is considered the first-ever detective tale. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle modeled Sherlock Holmes partially after Eugene. And Agatha Christie was so inspired by the Frenchman that she went on to create one of the most recognizable French-speaking investigators in literature, Hercule Poirot. Eugene Francois Vidoc lived a crazy, curious life. But despite his flawed beginnings, he influenced detective work for the better and inspired characters we wouldn't want to live without. It can be very tempting, a locked door, a warning sign in bright red letters saying stay out or no admittance. It's natural to want to peek behind the curtain, to go where we're not meant to go. What's on the other side? Why are we not allowed in there? But as enticing as it may be to sneak inside and have a look for ourselves, most of us will never take that step. The last thing we want is to get caught breaking and entering. But James Connolly didn't worry about such things. If he wanted in, he would find a way. Connolly was born in 1869 in Massachusetts. His parents and sister died when he was only 10 years old, and he was sent to live in an orphanage. Over the years, he developed a keen sense for navigating the streets, finding his way into spaces where he wasn't allowed or wanted. When he got older, Connolly was known around town as One Eye, on account of having lost one of his eyes when he was only 18. It's what cost him a career as a professional boxer, but he still loved watching the matches anyway. He would even travel out of state to watch certain fights, like the time he went to New Orleans to see John L. Sullivan and Gentleman Jim Corbett battle it out in 1892. He showed up at the gates without a penny in his pocket. Thinking on his feet, he gave the guard a story about having a message for Sullivan from his brother. The gatekeeper, thinking nothing of it, let him through and escorted him to the boxer's prep area. Connolly came clean about the lie, but Sullivan didn't kick him out. He admired his gumption and let him watch the match anyway. From there, Connolly only got more brazen in his deceptions. He would flash a fake press badge at the door or haul a block of ice into a venue claiming that he was delivering it to a concession stand. He even wore the uniform of an ambulance driver and made up a story about responding to an emergency inside the building. One particular ruse involved Connolly dressing up as a painter and pretending to paint a stadium. He asked a guard where he should paint next and was instructed to go inside and ask the person in charge. Of course, someone as notable as James Connolly soon found himself recognized at every gate he tried to crash. Gatekeepers and guards were on the lookout, ready to pounce on the wily one-eyed weasel as he tried to slip inside every arena, theater, and stadium without pain. 
One time in Jersey City, New Jersey, he was stopped from crashing a boxing match 13 times before he picked up a coffee jug and a basket full of sandwiches and made his way through the 14th gate unnoticed. In his later years, though, he moved to Chicago, a new city full of new possibilities. It was there where he truly became famous, too, especially for one particular businessman named Andy Frayne. You see, Frayne supplied venues with ushers and other staff for games and matches of all kinds. And there was Connolly, trying to find new ways to breach the perimeter of each of those places. But it wasn't about the money. Connolly often took random jobs here and there to make ends meet. He worked as a waiter for a short time, as well as an elevator attendant. I guess my point is that he didn't need to sneak inside. He could have bought a ticket. And so for a long time, he would find his way into an arena or a theater inevitably staffed by Frayne, and each time he would be discovered and kicked out. But eventually, Frayne stopped fighting him. There were other gate crashers to stop, and what better way to catch them than to put the best one on the payroll? So Frayne hired Connolly as a gatekeeper himself, sticking him at one of the entryways to Wrigley Field during a World Series game in 1945. It was a game between the Chicago Cubs and the Detroit Tigers. Then on that day, one man tried to push his way into the stadium without a ticket, but Connolly wouldn't have it. He knew all of the tricks. Well, except for one. The man he was keeping out was Philip Wrigley, the owner of the Cubs and the man whose family name was on the building. According to an article in the Chicago Tribune, Connolly just sneered and said, that's for the birds, please go away. James Connolly died in 1953 at the age of 84. When asked about his late acquaintance, Mr. Frayne said, I will give you eight to one that he crashes the pearly gates. I'd like to see St. Peter keep him out. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious.